Well, good morning, Study Life. Good morning, fam. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, and welcome to day 196 of this online learning course we call Community in the Time of Coronavirus. Uh, if you didn't already know, my name is Ryan Dominguez, and I'll be our substitute teacher for today, if you will. <laughs> but actually, uh, I'm the creative pastor here at City Life. I'm at another church. You might call me the worship pastor or the music minister, but at City Life, we believe that worship is so much more than just what we do set to music. But more on that in a little bit. Thanks to COVID, uh, I may or may not be rocking a Zoom mullet right now. Don't worry, I got a fresh cut this week with Ezra, my four-year-old. Yep, that's right, we, uh, we get our haircuts at the same place. The place where you get to sit in a car and watch Peppa Pig on the TV while they cut your hair. So no, my Zoom mullet is not about my hair. Uh, anyone know what a Zoom mullet is? Uh, show of hands? Just kidding, I can't see you guys. I'm, I'm preaching to my iPhone right now. But uh, a Zoom mullet is this, you wanna know? It's uh, when you wear business casual up top, but you may or may not be wearing any pants right now. Because really, who can know these things anymore, all right? Because all we have right now, this is us, right? This is really all we have right now in terms of community. So um, anyways, you can't really know what I'm doing. You can't really tell me what's appropriate in these days, right? I mean, if, if other people aren't gonna wear masks for other people's safety, uh, who's to say I need to wear pants for yours? Uh, just kidding, guys. Uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna get into politics with you. Not today. But in, in all seriousness, as followers of Christ, we believe that the Word of God is what informs us as to what's appropriate and what's proper, right? And in the book, in the Word of God, we, we learn what it means to live out being imitators of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul calls us. I like to refer to myself as the an imitator of the Creator. Number one, because it rhymes, and uh, I'm a worship pastor, hello. <laughs> but uh, the Bible also tells us what is proper for worship, what proper worship should look like. In fact, both Jesus and the Old Testament prophets proclaimed and demonstrated how to worship God properly. So this morning, I want to invite you into a conversation today that I'm calling Make Worship Great Again, or Mwaga. Again, don't worry, uh, we're not talking about politics. It might just sound like a little bit. Hey, before we dive in, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you in humility. And if I'm honest, uh, today with a heavy heart, because while I know and while we know that your kingdom is here in part, your kingdom justice isn't manifested in the world around us all the way. It's not fully manifested. So we ask this morning that you would speak to us and speak through me from your timeless and always timely word about what it means to pour our lives out in worship and what worship should look like and how our services, our gatherings, our songs, and our feasts are meant to reflect the upside-down nature of your kingdom, the kingdom that brings all of us on the same side of the cross, the side needing your grace and your forgiveness. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. 
So let's get into it, shall we? I mentioned before that both Jesus and the Old Testament prophets proclaimed and demonstrated how to worship properly, right? So let's get our Bibles out, uh, our page turning fingers ready, or your screen swiping apps loaded, because we're going to start with Jesus in the New Testament, then we're going to jump back to some of those Old Testament prophets and come back around to the New Testament with Jesus' ministry and some of his followers, so we can find out how to make worship great again. My first point today is this. Spirit-filled solidarity makes worship great. I'll say that again. Spirit-filled solidarity makes worship great. And Jesus sets the tone for this in the Gospels as we read. Following his baptism, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and led into the desert for 40 days to be tested by the enemy. And we know that he refutes the enemy's temptations three times with what? With the word of God. That's right. And then scripture tells us he returns home full of the Holy Spirit and let's see what's next. So we're going to start first in Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, we read what Jesus does after he leaves the desert, after his baptism, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because spirit-filled solidarity makes worship great. So we're going to start in verse 14. In Luke chapter 4, it says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and then he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And they began to say to him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to recap, immediately after acing the enemy's pop quiz, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, goes back where? To his hometown in Nazareth. And what does he do? He goes to the synagogue and he worships. He reads from Isaiah's scroll and declares freedom. He declares freedom for the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, the oppressed, and all of which has been prophesied since Isaiah in Isaiah uh, 61. We'll get to that in a minute. Again, full of the Holy Spirit, he goes back home and he worships. He worships by reading the good news in the synagogue from Isaiah's scroll. And because he knows God's word, he knows the good news it, the good news it is for all who hear it. And because he knows his role in all of it, he proclaims the good news to be fulfilled simply in all of their hearing. See, in proclaiming the good news to all people, Jesus brings all people together in solidarity. Let me say that again. In proclaiming the good news, in proclaiming the gospel that day to anyone within earshot of him reading Isaiah's scroll, Jesus brought all those people together in solidarity. Because in Jesus, we find the blueprint for a lifestyle of great worship, right? He is the blueprint of great worship. 
We also know from the Gospels that Jesus demonstrated this good news by bringing people together who were historically at odds with one another, right? If you think of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, he's always bringing people together who wouldn't normally associate. Um, for example, he brings together the Jew and the Samaritan. And if you know anything about uh, the Jew and the Samaritan's history, uh, the Samaritans uh, were a, kind of a mixed race. They kind of mixed in with um, the Assyrians. They were Jews who returned back after the exile, who mixed in with the Assyrians through intermarriage, through um, kind of worshiping the Assyrian idols. Um, and so the Jew and Samaritan were often at odds because of race, because of uh, different kinds of worship. There, I know there's a sermon in there somewhere, and uh, we'll get to it at another time for sure. Jesus also brings together the leper and the priest, right? The leper, um, in Jesus' day, leprosy was seen as this kind of outward result or an outward sign of sin in someone's life, whereas the priests were the ones atoning for these, making these sin offerings, not just for themselves, but the entire people of Israel in the temple. So the fact that a leper and a priest would be together is all through Jesus' spirit-filled solidarity building. He also brought together the religious and the sinner, a little bit more of the same. The Pharisees and the religious leaders um, would came together with sinners through Jesus' ministry, right? We, we read throughout how Jesus um, dines with, he talks with, he touches sinners, and the religious leaders and the Pharisees would have none of it. They were furious. They were incensed that Jesus would even spend time, let alone talk with or dine with sinners. But Jesus brings them together when he dines at a sinner's house. And lastly, this is just one of the other examples. Jesus brings together the tax collector and the taxpayer. Right? We know from the scriptures that the tax collectors were constantly trying to cheat taxpayers. Right? We, we know the story of Zacchaeus, who was cheating people um, on their taxes. And then when Jesus um, comes to his house, Zacchaeus um, is saved, right? Salvation has come to this house, Jesus says. And he turns around and says, you know what? Wherever I have stolen, wherever I have cheated, I will give back four times, right? And then we know that taxpayers were always trying to skimp, right? We think of the tax collectors trying to skim off the top and the taxpayers trying to skimp on what they pay for their taxes. We know that the religious leaders and the Pharisees again ask Jesus, hey, we know there's this tax that we pay to Caesar. What, like... Who should pay it or why should we pay it? And uh, Jesus says to them, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. So again, through Jesus' ministry, he is demonstrating how the Spirit leads him to bring solidarity to people who really wouldn't choose to be together. Because again, in Jesus, Jesus is the blueprint for a lifestyle of great worship. And just to recap, Jesus' first public act after being baptized, after going to the desert led by the Spirit, is to worship. He comes to the synagogue, reads the scroll, and proclaims the good news for all to hear. That sounds like great worship to me. Would you agree? Right? Worship in spirit, full of the Spirit, in truth, that reconciles people to one another. And people who, regardless or not if they believe it, need grace. We all need grace. We all need the good news of the gospel and God's grace to be forgiven and to also forgive. Hey, uh, in order to understand what great worship, what makes worship great, excuse me, I think it's also important for us to look at what makes worship not so great, 
right? Would you agree? We're trying to figure out what makes worship great. And then I think in order to know that, we need to know what makes worship not so great. So my second point today is ignoring injustice makes worship whack. Let me say that again. Ignoring injustice makes worship whack. We know that in Luke 4, Jesus is reading from Isaiah's scroll. And in fact, it's Isaiah 61. I said that a little bit earlier in our modern day Bibles. So would you turn with me there to Isaiah 61? Um, I don't know if you guys have a helpful song that tells you where the books of the Bible are. Um, I don't have that in my Rolodex, but I know that um, Isaiah is the first of the major prophets, and he's somewhat close to the middle, maybe just a little bit past the middle of, of my Bible. So Isaiah 61, and uh, because Jesus essentially reads the first few verses of chapter 61 in Isaiah, we're going to skip to verse 8. And we're going to read verse 8 and verse 9. You guys ready? <laughs> so Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall, shall, shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Yeah. Isaiah, like all the other Old Testament prophets, were given the unpopular job, right, of calling God's people out for their wicked ways and calling God's people back in to right relationship with God, right? The prophets called people out for their wicked ways and called people in back into right relationship with God. But we know that instead of loving justice and caring for the most vulnerable around them, right? And in that day, it would have been the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the sick, the lame, the deaf. And come to think of it, those are the most vulnerable around us in our day as well. Well, instead of loving justice and caring for the most vulnerable around them, the people of Israel continued to take advantage of those who were vulnerable until... They were taken away into exile by the Assyrians. Ah, the Assyrians, right? That's why the Jews and Samaritans were at odds, because the Jews who returned from exile after being exiled by the Assyrians would intermarry and begin to worship the Assyrian gods, and that, that's what caused that tension. There's definitely, again, another sermon in there. We'll, we'll get to that someday. I promise. It's, it's very interesting. But what I didn't know uh, until this last time that I read Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets was that Isaiah wasn't even the first of God's prophets to warn his people to love justice or be exiled. Right, again, Isaiah is the first of the uh, major prophets in our Bible, but not long before Isaiah, about 15 years or so, came Amos. And Amos was also called to call Israel to repent, seek justice. And most importantly for our conversation today, Amos called the people to worship properly. So we're going to turn to Amos 5, verse 18. <laughs> Amos comes after Joel. I remember that. There we go. Amos 5. And again, we'll start in verse 18, and we'll read 18 to 27. Interestingly enough, the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the version that we most often use here at City Life, um, they titled the different sections of scripture, and this section from 18 to 27 in Amos 5 is called, Let Justice Roll Down. So let's start reading together in verse 18. It says, 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went, in, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 25, did you bring me bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh your king and Kian your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, that's Assyria, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. I don't know about you guys, but darkness and gloom, rejected gatherings and offerings, noisy music, that doesn't sound like God-honoring worship to me, except for maybe when I was in my emo phase. Anyone else? Anyone else have an emo phase? Mati, you out there? No, no. <laughs> but notice first that Jesus, in reading Isaiah, talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, sorry, the year of the Lord and the year of the Lord's favor, while Amos talks about the day of the Lord as being darkness and not light. According to a commentary, Israel may have integrated this day of the Lord, or what they call day of Yahweh, into their feast days, um, mimicking the surrounding cultures, right? But it actually refers to the occasion on which Yahweh will ascend to his throne with the purpose of binding chaos and bringing justice to the world order. And this sounds good to Israel, right? This just became another day to feast and party because they obviously thought they were on the right side of justice. So they thought the justice around the injustice around them was going to be righted because Yahweh was going to uh, ascend to the throne and bind chaos and bring justice. But Amos is actually warning God's people that this day of the Lord that they've been incorporating as a feast day would bring darkness and not light. He says that twice, once in verse 18 and once in verse 20. Because it would be the day that Israel would be bound and brought to justice for its hollow and unjust worship. The same commentary says, Amos's attack is addressed at the empty, mechanically celebrated Hagin, which is the Hebrew term for the three major festivals. See, in Israel's day, religious festivals offered frequent opportunity for celebrations, communal meals, and social gatherings. But what had been designed as a means to praise, praise and honor God, however was not bringing any pleasure to him. In the previous, after, previous chapter in Amos, Amos 4, Amos actually calls some of God's people cows. Cows of Bashan. Why cows, right? Well, he calls them cows of Bashan because they would oppress the poor and crush the needy, all because they had grown so fat and self-absorbed from feasting to the Lord that they didn't even notice the poor and starving around them who were not allowed to attend these communal feasts. During this time, Israel had a nobility and merchant class, right? They had become prosperous by over-farming the land to, uh, to mass-produce uh, these cash crops like grain, olive oil, and wine. But at the same time, they raised the prices of basic necessities for the, the farm workers who would do this work. And some of these farm workers actually had their lands seized by the government to maximize the production again of these cash crops. 
So picture this, while the nobility, the upper class, right, the upper class Israelites were living it up in Bashan, right, that's kind of north and east, kind of like the Hamptons, are north and east, uh, the, the, the top 1%, right, was partying in the Hamptons, while the essential workers, these farm workers, were left out to scrounge for basic necessities and keep farming the land, keep over farming land that was stolen from them so that the, the economy would keep going and serve that top 1%. Amos rails against this kind of worship because it smacks of that same injustice that God was diametrically opposed to. Right, we read in Isaiah 61 verse 8, I hate robbery and wrong. Amos 5 verse 21 says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I, I know I mentioned before that the ESV titles this passage, Let Justice Roll Down. And actually, the very first time I heard that phrase, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, came when I listened to uh, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech in full. Right? I listened to it for a class in seminary um, that talked about uh, Martin King and talked about um, Malcolm X as kind of modern-day prophets. Um, but 57 years ago, right, in 1963, during the March on Washington, the first March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Dr. King, uh, a modern-day prophet, again, quotes Amos 5.24 when he boldly proclaims that, no, no, we are not satisfied and will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. See, because in the struggle for equal civil and voting rights for all people, Dr. King and those in the civil rights movement knew that the worship of God in this country had become empty and hollow too, because injustice was in and around the church and was being ignored, right? Because ignoring injustice makes worship whack. Sadly, we're still fighting some of the very same things today in America. But I digress. We're not talking about politics today. Let's get back to the scriptures, yeah? In the scriptures, we see this kind of injustice all over the place and God's prophets and God's, um, God's anointed ones railing against it. And in the New Testament, again, we find that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and teachers of the law because they have ignored injustice and perpetrated injustice all while trying to worship God appropriately or worship God greatly. Hey, um, before we get to this third point, I feel this, this overwhelming need to pray and repent and ask for God's forgiveness. So would you pray with me again? Thanks, guys. Lord, I want to stop right now. And I want to confess and ask your forgiveness for all the ways my worship has displeased you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the times I've ignored or neglected injustices around me, all for the sake of worshiping you appropriately. Whether in ritual or tradition or religion or any other empty way I've gotten away with paying you lip service, God, I'm sorry. And if our worship has ever been displeasing or offensive to you, if there's any offensive way in us, God, would you search us out and show us, bring it to mind, allow us to confess and repent, and please be gracious with us and show us the righteous way to glorify you. We pray this by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, guys. You know, um, reading this passage, uh, I'm reminded of, of 
a few ways that I have ignored injustice or even perpetrated injustice while trying to worship God appropriately the way I was told worship should be appropriate or orderly. Uh, so I'm just going to share some of those times with you if that's okay. I know one time uh, after just getting off stage um, after leading worship, I was directed by a pastor to who was just about to get on stage to preach to wake up the homeless man in the back seat, in the back row, right? Because he was causing a distraction and making people uncomfortable, the people around him who were getting ready to worship appropriately. He was distracting them. And so I obeyed. Another time I was directed by a pastor to ask a kind of older, disheveled, looking lady to stop taking more than one free book from the resource table because they were there for everyone and essentially i had to communicate that hey the the books at the resource table for your edification for your spiritual growth they are there for everyone but essentially i was communicating they're there for everyone else again i obeyed and now for my least favorite story, probably because it paints me in not such a flattering way, um, is when I asked my neighbor's kid to stop eating so much at my front stoop cookout because I thought there wasn't gonna be enough for everyone else. Uh, there's that everyone else again. See, before the Heights MC became what it is today, shout out to the Heights MC, what, what? <laughs> Claire and I used to drag our grill from the backyard to the front stoop on Sunday nights and cook out with some Christian friends from the neighborhood and give out free burgers and hot dogs to any of my neighbors who would walk by, right? All in the hopes that we get to know more people on our block and eventually get to share our faith with them. But this one time, my next door neighbor is growing boys. They were about seven and nine, I think at the time, growing adorable, great kids, um, but they were growing and so they were hungry. <laughs> they kept coming back for seconds and thirds, and uh, I almost had to crack that second bag of buns before any of the grown-ups had had any, right? Because the grown-ups were all chatting and getting to know each other, and um, you know, before the food, uh, before attacking the food. But these these two boys, man, <laughs> they were uh, voracious, is the word, right? So uh, I took little Jojo, the seven. I think he was seven at this time, and Jojo's not his real name, of course. Um, but I take Jojo aside. And I pretty much told them to, hey, like, stop stuffing your face and beat it, right? I think those are my exact words. Definitely judgy. Um, see, I, I really, I had completely forgotten why we were feasting this way in the first place, right? To get to know my neighbors, to get to be a presence in the neighborhood. Um, but I was more concerned with having enough having enough for who, the, the potential converts that were walking by, um, rather than feeding my hungry neighbor's kid. <laughs> but this is how good God is, right? Even though I was doubting whether there was gonna be enough for everyone, God is faithful. And some other, num some other neighbors came over with a whole mess of cookies, all these extra cookies that ended up being more than enough for everyone and more than enough to, to fill Jojo's sweet tooth. Um, because that, that's, that's how good our God is, right? I think God was trying to teach me something about worship in, these, in all of these stories, right? I think um, 
number one, that great worship isn't about quantity, but quality, right? I mean, remember what he did with two fish and five loaves of bread? See, it's not about how frequently or we worship, right? Not about the amount, not about how frequently we worship, but about how freely we worship, about how generously we worship, about how openly, open-handed we are with, um, with what God has given us, with who we think God is. Um, yeah, it's about freedom, not frequency. And also number two, great worship isn't about the feasting alone. It's not just about the feasting, but it's also about the fasting. Let me explain. Um, it's about making room for God to be the one who feeds us and not trying to be the one who gets credit for feeding others. Does that make sense, right? It's, it's Worship is about feasting in part. It's about celebration, about who God is, but at the same time it's about fasting so that we're making room for God to be the one who feeds us, who sustains us. Thanks. I, I, I needed to get that off my chest, especially after reading Amos again. Um, I knew that there were times when my worship was whack, was whack. And I know there's even more times that don't come to mind right now, but I wanted to share that with you. So this leads me to my third and final point. And my third and final point is this. Sacrificial service is what makes worship great. Right? I'll say that again. Sacrificial service makes worship great. See, Jesus' whole ministry is centered around, centered around these two things. It's centered around service to God the Father. Right, He only did what he saw the Father doing. And at the same time, Jesus' whole ministry is centered around sacrifice for the people of God. Right? Isn't that the picture of the cross? Jesus serves God the Father, and he sacrifices for God's people. Jesus models this from the very beginning of his ministry. He condescends, right? That's a big seminarian term that we use in different, different times here at City Life. But he condescends, right? He's the king of heaven, the king of everything, and he steps down off of his throne to be with us. And not only be with us, he takes the humblest form of us, right? Think about it. He comes as a, a baby, a helpless baby, born to a teenage virgin, right? And not in some fancy hospital or this home birth, but in the food trough, right? In the food trough in a stable of probably not the flashiest or most um, majestic animal, right? He doesn't come in the food trough or the stable of a, of a white stallion with long flowing hair. He doesn't come um, in a lion's den, right? The king of the jungle. No, he comes in the food trough of a donkey, probably one of the lowliest beasts of burden. Um, but that's what Jesus does, right? He condescends he serves the Father, and he sacrifices for God's people. And in doing so, in, in condescending into being with us, he brings this good news all the way to the fringes of society, and he makes everyone acceptable to society again. He makes everyone acceptable to the Father again. See, what we see in Jesus' life, he actually foretells, right? In Mark 10, verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? To serve, not to be served, and to sacrifice. Jesus' sacrificial service is what makes worship great. 
Let me say that again. It's Jesus' sacrificial service that makes worship great because it's antithetical to the worship of the religious leaders. And I'll say antithetical to the worship that I talked about before because the injustices that are ignored in that worship is, is whack. We know that in Jesus' ministry, he admonishes the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Um, and he does that all throughout Luke, Luke's gospel, right? In, in Luke 11, verse 46, he says that the Pharisees load people with burdens hard to bear while not touching the burdens with even one of their fingers. He says in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 46, that the religious leaders like to walk around in long robes and they love receiving greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And then they also devour widows' houses and offer a pretense, make these long, drawn-out prayers. See, and, and this is in stark contrast, stark contrast to what James writes about in his epistle, right? In James 1, verse 27, James writes this about great worship, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, right? The orphans, the widows, the sick, the lame, the deaf, right? The leper, these are the, the vulnerable in society then and the vulnerable in society now. But unlike the Pharisees, Jesus' great worship comes at a cost, right? Jesus' sacrificial service that makes worship great comes at a cost. We know that it ultimately costs Jesus his life as he took upon himself the wrath of our just God. All for the injustices perpetrated by people, by all people. Not just the sins and the injustices perpetrated by oppressors, but also the oppressed. Right? Jesus' sacrificial service levels the playing field for all of us, even the very worst sinners in our minds. Not only that, it makes us all acceptable, all worthy of God's grace and forgiveness. And again, it's ultimately Jesus' sacrificial service that makes our worship pleasing or our worship great in the eyes of the Father. So to recap, and with this I'll close, in our quest to make worship great again, we jumped back and forth all over the scriptures to discover that spirit-filled solidarity makes worship great and pleasing to God, while ignoring injustice makes worship whack, and ultimately that Jesus' sacrificial service is the blueprint of great worship and makes our worship great. See, we, we've learned that great worship is empowered by the Spirit to bring solidarity, it's enacted in sacrifice and service, and it's engaged with bringing kingdom justice for the vulnerable. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you come and invade us now and restructure our understanding of worship to be more than the songs that we sing, more than the gatherings we attend, and more than the words we recite? Would you show us how following you brings us into family with one another and our brothers and sisters who are suffering injustice and oppression. And then would you show us how you're calling us to serve and sacrifice the way Christ did in order to glorify you with our lives poured out in great worship? 
We pray this all in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey guys, as has been our custom over the last six or so months, I wanted to leave you with a few discussion prompts to keep us thinking and praying about how we can make worship great again. All right? So the first prompt is this. When we hold our worship services, who is being served? Right? Is it us? Is it God? It is our neighbors? And if it is us, how can we change that? Number two, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, are we feasting or are we fasting? Right, I said earlier that um, it's about feasting to celebrate who God is and what he's done. And that's also about making room and fasting. So are we overindulging while others are starving, hurting or dying? And then how are we actually making room or space for God to hear from God in our fasting? And the last prompt is this. When we worship God, does it cost us anything? And when we worship God, are there ways in which it casts others out? And when we worship God, are there ways in which it benefits others? Well, thank you, City Life. Um, This has been a tremendous honor to me um, for getting to preach about worship with you today. Um, I know it's it's my honor to get to lead worship with you week in and week out. um, And this is extra special. So thank you. Um, And it's my hope that our church's worship would continue to grow and develop, right, into greater service and greater sacrifice for our neighbors and to our neighbors here in our city. So um, hop on one of those uh, Zoom unity calls, right? I'm going to hashtag that Zoom unity. And uh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about worship, how we can make it great again, um, because that's what we get to do as God's people. We get to love him and love others in the way that he calls us. Thanks, guys. See ya.